Hello, I'm Eric Sorensen, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, April 29th. On the show this week, Western provinces push back over pipeline jurisdiction and carbon pricing. We'll ask the federal environment minister how her government plans to deal with very different battles that two provinces are taking to court. Then, NAFTA talks intensify. A May 1st deadline looms on U.S. tariffs on steel and aluminum imports. What's at stake for this country? And why is Ottawa launching new identity trade missions? And the silence breakers. Their voices created the Me Too movement. What are the next steps to end sexual harassment and employment inequities for women? But first, the horns of a dilemma for the Environment Minister Catherine McKenna. B.C. and Saskatchewan are both launching court challenges, pulling Ottawa in diametrically opposite directions. The federal government's grand bargain was carbon pricing to help the environment and a new pipeline to help the economy until this country can become greener. But B.C. doesn't want the pipeline and Saskatchewan doesn't want carbon taxes. So what can Ottawa do? We'll start first with British Columbia's challenge and joining us now from Parliament Hill is Federal Environment Minister Catherine McKenna. Minister McKenna, you've proposed to B.C. a scientific advisory panel. They are referring the matter to the B.C. Court of Appeal anyway. What does this do to the May 31st deadline? Realistically, uh, can you keep Kinder Morgan in it? And, uh, and is it going to go past May 31st now? Um, so we've been clear that this project is going to go ahead. It's a project that went through a full review. Um, and uh, it has 157 binding conditions. Uh, it was approved by the British Columbia government uh, a year ago and also our government. And we've been clear we're looking at a full range of measures, legal measures. Um, we're also in discussions with the company and we're not going to be having uh, discussions in public. Um, but we're committed to this project. In terms of the letter that I wrote to my BC counterpart, I mean, one of the main purposes of that later letter was to point out that, that we were very disappointed that the government of British Columbia ignored all of the work that's been done on uh, oceans and protecting the coasts. Um, I, I noted, uh, and I think it's for the purposes of people of BC, because we care greatly about the oceans and the coast. I noticed the conditions uh, on the project that are legally binding. Our $1.5 billion ocean protections plan, that that was the previous government of BC, emphasized the need to make more investments. And we made investments, including opening, reopening the Kitsilano Coast Guard Station. Um, and then there's also the science. We have been doing science. Um, on oil spills, on diluted bitumen uh, for 30, over 30 years. Um, so I think it's really important that, that people of BC are confident that we have measures in place, that we took into account concerns about protecting the oceans, um, and but that it's, we you know, to, are committed to this project. But it's going to the courts now. It's going to go past, it would seem, past May 31st. What will it take, what will it cost to keep the project going if Kinder Morgan will even stay in it? Uh, well, we're having direct discussions directly with the company. As I say, we're not going to have those uh, discussions in public. Uh, we're committed to this project. Uh, we think it's a good project. It fits within our climate plan. It, we have the protections in place for our oceans. But it also creates good jobs, not just in Alberta, but in British Columbia, uh, across the country. And uh, it contributes to economic growth. But it pays for programs like health care, like education. Um, and we can do both. I've always said the environment and the economy go together. Um, and this is, we're demonstrating that we're taking strict measures uh, to protect our environment, smart measures. Um, but we also need good projects to go ahead. And we're in a transition. We're moving to we're a cleaner future. But we want our yeah. natural resources to go to market. 
it seems there is still uncertainty about indigenous support. There's been much made of 43 uh, indigenous groups that support it. Opponents say there are 50 plus that are against it. Is there anything more you can do besides consulting and explaining that will satisfy indigenous opponents? Uh, well, we've had many consultations with Indigenous peoples. As you point out, 43 uh, Indigenous uh, communities have impact benefit agreements with the, with the proponent, $300 million or more in value. Um, and, and, you know, we listen to the concerns, and we take these concerns extremely seriously. Um, and, but we, we move forward. And as I said, this project, we made the decision to approve this project over a year ago. Um, the government of British Columbia approved it over a year ago. Um, and we can't relitigate projects every time a new government comes, in, comes into, into uh, place. It's not, it does not create investor certainty, um, nor does it really help protect our environment. And as I said, I spent a lot of time talking about how the environment and the economy go together when we make project decisions. We're very clear at looking at the environmental impacts, the climate impacts, uh, engaging with indigenous peoples, making sure we make decisions on science and evidence. And that's exactly what we did with this project. And as I say, the project, you know, we're committed to the project going ahead. We're looking at all range of options um, and also having direct discussions with the, with the proponent. What, what, what do you make of this dichotomy between Saskatchewan and British Columbia? They, each of them seems to suggest you have certain powers, but that you don't have other powers, and they're on the complete opposite sides with respect to pipelines and carbon pricing. I mean, is Canada working? I think Canada's working fine. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the federal government is going to look after the national interest. And in 2015, um, Canadians voted for a government that was committed to protecting the environment, taking action on climate change, and also making sure that we had a robust system to uh, approve projects. Um, and so, you know, the, we have provinces. I mean, you know, in the same week, we have Saskatchewan saying we don't have jurisdiction to put a price on pollution, which we do. Uh, we have a province of BC saying we don't have uh, jurisdiction uh, to approve major projects like pipelines, which we do. Um, and I'm going to continue talking to Canadians. I mean, that's my focus. My focus is explaining to Canadians that we care greatly about the environment, that we actually think it's a huge opportunity to position Canada as a leader in clean innovation. Um, that includes how we develop our natural resources um, and that we can both protect the environment but also get our resources to market and grow our economy. Fair, fair enough. Uh, Canadians uh, are hearing you make the case uh, again and again. What they're not clear on is just how this goes forward. Can you give us a framework, a timeline for how you settle the score with BC and Saskatchewan, how long it's going to take, and if there are costs involved, what would that be? Um, I mean, so there are obviously two different, there are two different questions. On, on the, the, on the um, Kinder Morgan, uh, the Trans Mountain expansion, we've, we recognize that the company has set a deadline. We're working with them. Uh, we believe it's a, it's a good project. It should go ahead. Um, and I mean, in terms of putting a price on pollution, we have said um, that governments, you know, need to step up and put a price on pollution um, and in indicate how they're going to do so by the end of the year. And let's be clear, 80% of Canadians live in a province where there's a price on pollution already. That's Alberta, British Columbia, um, uh, Ontario and Quebec. Um, and there, the good news is we've seen that those are the fastest growing economies in the country. And you can look at the example of British Columbia where they put a price on pollution, they gave the money back, 
uh, to, uh, to residents of British Columbia. They manage to reduce pollution and also grow their economy. So there's lots of models for provinces uh, to look at, and I've said that uh, to Premier Mo from Saskatchewan. They can put a price right. on pollution. It's up to them to determine what they want to do with the revenues. But we need to be smart about this. We are moving okay. to a cleaner future because we need to do that uh, for our kids. But also, it's a huge economic opportunity in the trillions of dollars. And we want the clean solutions. The clean solutions right. in oil and gas and the clean Ms. McKenna, solutions we're, in we're, clean We're out of time, Ms. McKenna. Ms. McKenna, we're out of time. Thanks very much for talking to us today. Great. Thanks very much. On Tuesday, U.S. tariffs on steel and aluminum take effect. Canada is exempt for now, while a new NAFTA deal is being negotiated. Those talks intensified in Washington last week, Foreign Affairs Minister Freeland cancelling other plans to take part. There is pressure to get a deal before Mexican elections, which are now just two months away. And here at home, the trade minister announced new so-called identity trade missions. What's that about? We caught up with International Trade Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne on Friday to talk trade. Joining us now, Minister Champagne, thank you for uh, being here. Um, you know what the first question is when it comes to NAFTA talks. Are we close? And, and I guess I would put that in terms, can you quantify for us sort of how far we've come and maybe how much further there is to go? Well, first of all, I'd say welcome back. It's great to have you back. And I'd say, uh, you know, the, the mood is good. Uh, in, in Washington. You know, we've made significant progress on the auto sector, which, as you know, is a very key sector in, in our Canadian economy. I'll remain cautiously optimistic because you know how negotiations are going. Uh, things that were tough at the time of Brian Mulroney remain tough today, whether you talk about public procurement, whether you talk about Chapter 19, whether you talk about rules of origin. But, you know, what we saw in Washington this week is good progress, and, and I think um, this is what Canadians expect from us, is to be at the table, to make progress, but stand firm. Stand firm for the workers across Canada, stand firm for the industries across Canada. Are you standing firm on the sunset clause? It sounds like the Americans would like to have a clause where they can effectively terminate the deal, or at least threaten to terminate it every so, so many years. Well, we've said it. I mean, it's completely unnecessary. You know, uh, you know well, the big thing in North America, I've said many, many times, is there's three things. You know, how can we make North America more competitive? How can we build more in North America? And how can we sell together to the world? I mean, that should be our primary objective. So anything that goes against that philosophy uh, is not conducive of that. We want a win-win-win situation. Um, we, need to do have, we need to have rules that will empower workers and industries across our nation to continue in these very integrated supply chains that we have in North America. So um, you will always see Canada uh, fighting for a good deal. You know, I keep saying to people, uh, no one remembers when we signed, was it a Monday, a Thursday, was it in January or March or April? Uh, what people care about is to see that we are serious at the table, we are constructive, but we stand firm for Canadians across the nation. Whenever we have a key player on the NAFTA talks, I, I, I want to talk to them not just about NAFTA, but about the fact that we're talking about NAFTA with a Trump administration. Um, Mr. Lighthizer now is on his way, it seems, to China. China is a front burner issue for Washington. Talk to me about that challenge of, uh, of conducting these negotiations with all the turmoil that is kind of in the background of uh, the Trump administration. Well, I can tell you, as the International Trade Minister of Canada, for me, I've been advocating around the world rule-based trade. You know, we want open, fair, and rule-based trade. This is what we are promoting, not just here in Canada, and, and we'd say with our partners, but around the world. You know, I was just at the 
um, talking with G7 members saying that, for example, Canada is, a, is at the center of trade. We're the only country which has a free trade agreement with all other G7 partners. So I think Canada has the potential to really influence the world. When you look at our progressive and inclusive trade agenda, I remind Canadians, I say Canadians have given us a broad mandate to engage in trade, but not at the expense of the environment, not at the expense of labor standards, not at the expense of governance principle. They want these trade agreements in the 21st century to reinforce these. And I keep saying this is not a, this is not a, a, a march to, to uh, this is not a run to the bottom, it's a march to the top. So we need to work together to make sure that these rules would obviously um, serve Canadian and serve our industries. Are you getting there on labor standards? Because, um, you know, Jerry Diaz, the union leader, says, well, let's wait till after the Mexican election, get a progressive government in there, because Washington, surprisingly, doesn't seem to be putting, uh, you know, higher wages in Mexico in, uh, as a sort of a main issue right now. And that was an important one for Canada. That was something we could get behind them on so that wages go up in Mexico and you don't have plants being shuttered maybe as readily in, uh, above the Mexican border. Well, you know, th those are complex discussions. You know, they go around, you know, labor standards, rules of origin. So um, you would not expect me to negotiate in public. But what I can say is that obviously we're looking into that. Canada has always been at the forefront. You saw, for example, when we did our trade agreement with Europe, <clears throat> we had the first trade agreement where we had an environment chapter, we had a labor chapter, the same thing with the CPTPP within the Asia Pacific. We have the first ever labor chapter, which is enforceable. So. Uh, we're always at the forefront of making sure uh, that these standards become higher. Like I said, this is not a race to the bottom in terms of standards. This is a march to the top. So every time we want Canada to play a leading role in engaging other nations to make sure that they understand the benefit of having strong standards to uh, protect our workers, protect our industries, and obviously uh, work for the people. The trade has to work for people. So that's the premise where we look at the equation. You, uh, you mentioned the Pacific trade. Um, the developments in North Korea, we, we spoke with uh, an expert from UBC, Paul Evans. He said, uh, you know, when you get to the point we're at now, this is where Canada can re-engage on education, humanitarian, presumably on trade. What, uh, what do you see now for Canada to re-engage with the region? Well, you know, this is a situation that is unfolding, but let me say one, as the international trade minister, I always look at four things, education, tourism, culture, and trade. I think this is the way you have to look at a package to make Canada attractive. And when it comes to the Asia Pacific, I mean, uh, we wrote a chapter just recently by signing up to the CPTPP. You know, Canada is the second largest economy after Japan in that grouping. And what we did, Eric, is that we help write the rules of trade in the Asia Pacific region. This is a significant achievement. You know, when we were at the table, it was as much about geopolitics as as much about trade, because now what we have ensured is that there's a block of country in the Asia Pacific region which will have rule-based trade, fair and open trade. And obviously, as you would expect, many other nations have indicated their desire to join, whether it's South Korea, whether it's Taiwan, and even the UK has said that they would like to join in that grouping. So, And wouldn't it be something if uh, North Korea ended up being a, a party to that? I want to ask you one more thing because we're running short of well, time. we're not there yet. I no, we're say. not there yet, right? but, uh, but it's interesting to speculate at this moment in time. Um, and that is on your trade missions that are coming up that, yep. uh, that will deal with uh, specifics like LGBTQ2, uh, women's business, indigenous business. Um, some have said, well, this seems to be kind of creating silos instead of, uh, you know, broad-based uh, trade where you kind of connect everybody. Well, we're doing both. This is a great thing, you know, in our inclusive trade agenda, 
I thought about the progressive side before, which it's not only the smart thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. But when I say inclusive, the, the, the groups you mentioned, whether it's women-owned businesses, we want these uh, to be engaging more international trade. Same thing with indigenous people, same thing with youth, same thing with the LGBT2 community. But what we're doing at the same time, you may remember, I was on a trade mission in France just last week with the prime minister where we talk about artificial intelligence and green technologies. I was talking with CNUC Nexen, for example, which have a trade mission in China to bring our SMEs in the oil and gas sector of Alberta to give in their markets. So the good thing is that we're doing both. I was really surprised by the criticism because what we want is more sector engaging in international trade and more people because trade is about people. So what we're saying is that those who have been underrepresented historically, we're gonna to try to work with them, whether it's SMEs, youth, and bring them along, and at the same time, featuring sectors just like we did last week in France. Minister Champagne, thank you for talking to us. It's always a pleasure, thank you. The Me Too movement is celebrating a victory. Three guilty verdicts for sexual assault against U.S. comedian Bill Cosby. It has been a whirlwind of change for women to be heard since last fall. Powerful and famous men have been called to account for sexual harassment and worse. The silence breakers were recognized by Time magazine as person of the year. I sat down with one of the silence breakers, Adama Iwu, to talk about where we are now. Adama Iwu, thank you for joining us. Uh, you're the head of government relations for Visa, so you're at the intersection of government policy and corporate interests. And you were talking about this last year, this recently as last year, and you had your own moment where you could say, me too. Unfortunately, like many women, I can say me too. Um, I'd been at a political event and I was sexually harassed. It happened in front of a group of people and nobody really stepped in and did anything. And it was pretty bad timing because we had just kind of heard the Weinstein tape that had come out and we'd heard some of the things he was saying, very coercive, really crude things. And I had already kind of been on like a slow burn about that. And then the next day being sexually harassed, I just decided this is ridiculous. This happens in politics just like it happens in many other industries. And I want to do something about it. I want to not just brush it under the rug or sweep it away or ignore it or laugh it off. I want to do something about it. And it turned out a lot of women wanted to do something about it. So 147 of us wrote a letter talking about the pervasive nature of sexual harassment in politics. And it really went viral. It was in the Los Angeles Times and People have reached out to me from all over the world. Uh, we started a nonprofit and we are working pretty much full time on these issues, especially around workplace violence and in politics. And it really has snowballed, uh, you know, from Harvey Weinstein to just this past week, Bill Cosby was convicted and I don't know if there's any connection there at all, but it seems like, you know, is society getting it now? Like, are we past a point of no return going back to the old attitudes? Gosh, I hope so. Um, it seems like things are changing. People come forward and they're being believed in ways that we've never seen before. The Cosby thing has been a long time coming. I mean, they were able to cover an entire magazine cover of women who said that you know they had been sexually abused by him. And I, I really, when I see verdicts like this, I really only think of the victims the women who were brave enough to come forward and tell their stories and put themselves up to public ridicule. Some of the questions these women were asked in court were incredibly crude and invasive and horrible questions that we shouldn't be asking victims. So that, that's kind of what I think of when I hear that you know, there finally was a guilty verdict. 
I want to ask you a little bit about backlash because this past week we had this terrible van rampage in Toronto and the term incel arose, uh, involuntary celibates. There is, a, a, there is a kind of a misogynistic aspect to some within that community and they seem to be, there seems to be a backlash against women, wh whether it's over sexual relations or feminism or what have you. Is that to be expected in the same way that we saw with the civil rights movement, that there was always a backlash that came after advancements were made? Yeah, and part of this is there's always going to be people who hate other people for their own reasons. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about that or glorifying that. But there is a backlash. You can always expect a backlash because we are challenging very deeply ingrained and widely accepted power structures. And power never gives up power without a fight. And that's really what we're doing here. We're trying to pull apart those power structures that would um, you know, systemically and systematically hold people back, um, marginalize people, women, people of color, um, indigenous people, LGBTQ, any kind of underrepresented population. We're pushing back against those power structures. We, uh, I sat in on a panel with you and the federal minister, Patty Haydu, this, uh, this past week, and um, she said that a colleague, a man, said to her recently, Oh, I like the dress you're wearing. It's a nice dress. Oh, can I say that? Is that all right? And she says, yes, yes, you can say that. And you answered. Just don't touch it. Yes, and, and I thought, and the, and the room broke up because, yeah, I get that. Don't touch the dress. But I think for men, they're not sure what it is that's appropriate to say now. You know, they've, they've been, t because, you know, it's how you might say that about that dress. You could say it with a certain tone and that wouldn't be taken the right way. So. What is your advice to men right now uh, in this changing environment? Well, my advice to men is the same as my advice to women. This really is an opportunity for us to recalibrate and check what we're doing, check your privilege, check your intentions, because it really isn't about your intention. You might just be someone who likes to give a compliment or who likes to give a hug when you meet people, but you don't know what the person you are coming to, you don't know what has happened to them in the past, you don't know what baggage they're bringing to that same interaction that might make them feel threatened or vulnerable. So just ask, very simply say, you know what, I really like your suit, it's lovely. Do, are you comfortable with me saying that? Or, you know, hi, I'm a hugger, are you comfortable with that? I think that's fine to do. Yeah, it's, and that's hard to know sort of what is intended because I mean, not many men look at, the, look at a guy across the way and say, nice tie, I like the lapels. <laughs> And so you, you don't. You guys don't do that. No. Why don't you? You should do that more. <laughs> we, we probably should. Um, you, you know, this is a program about uh, government policy. What would be your advice to, say, the Canadian government? But but you know, governments in North America, uh, there is legislation going through here in Ottawa on uh, workplace and harassment uh, policy. Uh, what would you say to government? Well, I mean, I, I would never presume to tell government what they should do, but. I do think that government leads and they have the opportunity to set the tone, um, set like large structures, power structures in place and set intentions for the country. Um, I think that's incredibly important. I, talking to the minister about her legislation, it's incredibly important that people are protected in their workplace and every workplace, that those protections are the same for everyone. And to make sure that it happens, I think that's absolutely incredible and that is the job of government. And the path forward, is, are things happening quickly enough or is it going to be a long slog? 
I, I think we've been on a long slog. I kind of say that as long as it's taken a problem to exist and continue to perpetuate, it takes that long to fix it. So I don't think anyone is looking for quick answers or quick fixes, but we are looking for people to be engaged and stay engaged. Thanks for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block.